book of Ezekiel. So, go ahead and find your Bibles and find the table of contents and find the book of Ezekiel uh, and turn there and uh, we'll watch a short intro video. But first, let me pray for our time together. Father God, as we open your word, we want to hear from you. We want to be changed. We don't want to leave this building the same as when we walked in because you are light, you are love, and you have life in you. Would you put your life in us? Give us a new heart and a new spirit this morning. Open our eyes so that we can see Jesus more and more in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ezekiel was written by the prophet Ezekiel between 593 and 565 BC, addressing the nation of Israel during their exile in Babylon. Ezekiel is a captive living in Babylon when God's glory appears to him and raises him up as a prophet. Speaking on behalf of God, Ezekiel calls out Israel for breaking their covenant promise and warns them of the resulting consequences. He likens Israel to a rebellious wife one whom God raised up from nothing and in return hoard herself into corruption and idolatry, abandoning the love and provision of the Lord. Looking past their current exile, Ezekiel prophesied a valley scattered with dry, brittle skeletons, an image of Israel's spiritual state. God breathes life into the bones and they stand up, growing flesh and tendons and living once again. As depicted in Ezekiel's parable, God will remain faithful to his covenant promise and restore the Jewish nation into a new people with new hearts set apart for his glory. One of my son Julian's favorite books, he's one and a half almost, is The Monster at the End of This Book. Have you read it? It's a good one, yeah. It stars lovable furry old Grover from Sesame Street. Uh, this is the first page I've got up there. Grover says, what did that say on the cover? What did that is how I read it to Julian. On the cover, what did that say? Did that say there will be a monster at the end of this book? Oh, it did? Oh, I'm so scared of monsters. And as the book goes on, Grover tries to stop you from turning pages. And then at the end, spoiler alert if you haven't read it, uh, it's revealed that he, Grover, is the monster. And he had nothing to be scared of. Now, what does this fine piece of literature have to do with the book of Ezekiel? Well, we've been walking through the prophetic books in the Bible, and one of the interesting features of the prophets is that like Grover, the prophets were in the middle of the story and yet were reading the story and trying to figure out how it would end. It's sort of meta. They were characters in the story, and yet they were also reading the story, looking at all of history. They were reading the scriptures, studying the promises of God. They were putting the pieces together, and how would God fulfill all of his promises? And as we've seen in the Thread series, the biggest event, the biggest puzzle piece that they had yet to figure out was the exile. When because of Israel's repeated sin against God, Babylon came to destroy and then take away many people from their homes. So when we meet the prophet Ezekiel, he's one of those refugees. In the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, we meet him sitting along the banks of a river, would be a priest, if there was still a temple in Jerusalem to be a priest of. So Ezekiel is particularly attuned to the ceremonial and the purity laws of the Torah. God calls him to prophesy and communicate his messages to the people of Israel. So one thing that happens when you're reading the prophets of the Bible is that they all sort of 
jumble together in your head. And you're like, what's the difference between Haggai and Habakkuk? And you just get a little bit lost. Here's an interesting thing that you can remember about Ezekiel. He has a unique perspective as both a prophet and a priest. He's a messenger from God, and he was trained to mediate between God and the people of Israel. So as he's reading the story, he's reading it from both of those perspectives. He's always thinking about God's glory among the nations and judgment on evil. That's the prophetic side. And he's always thinking about how a sinful, broken people can be reconciled with a holy God. And that's the priest side. So in the passage we're going to look at today, Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives Ezekiel a message that was meant to comfort those who were living in exile like he was. And it was a really important time for Israel to be comforted because there was a general air of hopelessness among the exiles, understandably. Um, Some thought that God had given up on them that because they had for generations and generations fallen into the same old sin, the same old patterns of behavior, of injustice and idolatry, that God was just finished with them. There was even mockery from people of other nations looking at Israel saying, look, Yahweh was Israel's God, and yet he kicked them out of the promised land. Man, those people must have been really, really bad. So God's people had lost hope. They believed that nothing was ever going to change, that God was angry with them, and that they were forsaken. And I have to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Like nothing in your life is going right, and maybe it's God's judgment on you. You don't know. Maybe you feel despair, hopelessness, like nothing in your future is light, like it will never get better. What do we do when we feel those feelings? That is the situation that Ezekiel is preaching into. And I believe that God can give us what so many of us need this morning, hope. So Ezekiel is diagnosing, yes, the specific situation in Israel. He's reading that story, but he's also reading the grand story of human beings. He's trying to summarize the universal human condition. So he tries to aim and answer these main questions. What is wrong with us as human beings? And what can make it right again? What's wrong with us and what can make it right again? So we're going to be walking through Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 to 36. Uh, There are three sections in this passage. We have the problem and then two different solutions, the personal solution and the global solution. So we're going to take those one by one as we seek an answer to those main Questions. Will you turn with me to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16? We're going to start off by looking at what the problem is. Verse 16 in Ezekiel 36. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So in this section, 
God is looking back on Israel's story and he's explaining why he judged them, why they are in exile. It's kind of a retrospective, a summing up of the story so far. In verse 16, God begins by saying them that he brought to their own land, the promised land, but then they defiled that land by what he calls their ways and their deeds, their actions, as well as their pattern of living. And then he describes what he means in verse 18. They shed blood in the land, meaning they had not only been violent, but also that they had been unjust and greedy, consuming other beings for their own gain, if you remember Obadiah from last week. God also says that they had worshipped idols, which was both literal. Israel did give their allegiance, offer sacrifices to God like Baal and Asherah, but their idolatry was also metaphorical internal. Earlier in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, we read about Israel separating themselves from God by taking idols into their hearts. And this idea gets picked up and expanded by later biblical authors. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a very popular book, maybe you've read it, called Counterfeit Gods, in which he defined idolatry in the Bible. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So today... We might not be tempted to worship Molech or other ancient Near Eastern gods, but we are just as tempted as Israel was to give our hearts to things, things like money, things like comfort, like attention, influence, people-pleasing, to romantic fulfillment, to sexual fulfillment to career achievement, to family status. The list goes on and on of what we give our heart of hearts to. And it's at this point that we might say, okay, Mike, I get the whole like, idolatry thing. I get that concept. Israel turned from God. They worshiped other things. They did evil things in the land. But what is up with all this talk about profaning and defiling, especially because God uses this really strange language about unclean women and menstrual impurity. It's not really what you probably wanted to talk about this morning. I get it. It can be a little bit disturbing. This is where cultural background is helpful, but it can be a little bit confusing. So can you just stick with me while I explain ancient Jewish religious rituals for five minutes? Just stick with me. All right. In the laws of the Torah, Ritual impurity was a temporary state that everybody experienced when doing ordinary things, especially things that were connected to life and death, especially things that were connected to blood. So you became impure, yes, by menstruation, but also by having sex, by having a kid, by burying a loved one, and so on. And those are normal things. And here's the crucial point. Ritual impurity wasn't a sin. It wasn't a sin. It was a sign that all of us need inner cleansing from God from, to cleanse us from sin. But being unclean was not a bad thing. You just followed the laws to wash yourself and separated yourself for a few days, and then you re-entered normal life. It was a physical sign of an inward need for purity. 
But what was a sin, according to Leviticus, was being unclean and then coming near to the holy place, which was the tabernacle or the temple, approaching God kind of brazenly, saying, I can approach the holiness of God casually, on my own terms, however I want to. This is a difficult concept for modern people to grasp. We don't really have this in our society. So let me illustrate with something that all parents are familiar with. I've got some pictures up here. This is Julian when he was a little bit younger. He's just eaten a bowl of yogurt. So he's got yogurt beard there. He's got some yogurt hair. Look at those little grubby fingers. I love it. Uh, Julian is in a temporary state of ritual impurity. But it's not wrong for Julian to be messy. He's a toddler. Yogurt is messy. It's normal. It happens. But what would be wrong is if Julian got up and he approached the Holy of Holies, which is the couch, uh, in this state of messiness. In the same way, what Israel was doing to God was they were ignoring his commands, his wisdom. They were covered with yogurt, covered with mess. And then they spread that messiness of their impure lives everywhere they went. Their lack of concern about their impurity led to them worshiping false gods, the idolatry. It led to them hurting other people. And what Ezekiel in verse 20 calls profaning God's holy name. And you might have noticed already, and then it'll show up later throughout this passage, that over and over again, God says that he is primarily concerned not about the sin of human beings. He takes that very seriously. But his chief concern, his main complaint, is that his holy name was defiled. In verse 22, a little bit further down, he says he's going to provide a solution to these problems. Yes, not for the sake of the people, though, but for the sake of his holy name. So it's natural for us to ask, okay, so why is God so concerned with his reputation, with how he's represented in the world? We might even interpret these as though they came from a sinful, fallen human being. We might imagine a tyrant imposing his preferred laws on people by force, destroying nations, demanding worship. We might picture some narcissistic person looking in the mirror saying, I am so great and I want everybody to know it. I'm going to spread the greatness of my name everywhere. And it's just very unattractive. But... In order to understand the God of the Bible rightly, we need to adjust our interpretation in light of his moral perfection, not judge him as though he were also a fallen human being like you and me. The Bible presents God as a good and perfect being, a just and righteous creator with legitimate authority over all, a God who seeks the good of his people, yes, but who also seeks the good of his enemies, who loves like a father. And if you read the Bible, what you will consistently see is that God's highest purpose is his own glory. God is for God first. And that's actually good news for us. Why? Because God's motivation behind his love for you, his salvation for you, his provision for you, is not dependent on your performance. It's not dependent on how great you are. It's all dependent on how great he is. And he wants the whole world to know it. His glory leads to our good. We often believe the lie that life is all about you. 
your wants, your needs, your desires, your dreams, your success, it gets pretty exhausting. And so when we hear the gospel through that self-absorbed lens, sometimes we begin to think that God is all about us too, that he moved heaven and earth, that he sent his son into the world to live and die and rise again because he just couldn't bear to be parted from us. But there's some elements of truth in that, but it's a little bit backwards. Actually, what happened is that God sent his son into the world because he couldn't bear for you to be parted from him. We were created to enjoy God, to worship him, to delight in him, and to enjoy the things that he's made, to worship God in the things of creation. But in our arrogance, we make it all about us. We make God all about us. We make created things all about us. We take the good things that he's made, and we turn them into little God substitutes, and we bow down to them, and then we wonder, why aren't I happy? Why can't this thing satisfy me? why these created things were never permanently dulling the ache in our souls. It's because you were created for more. Reality is God-centered. You were created for God, and we are the beneficiaries of this. So, for God to act for the sake of his holy name is our greatest good. Now, I admit, so far, these are pretty heady topics, right? It's worth pondering over a cup of tea or a long walk. But here's the practical point for us. God is great, and that is why he cares for you. It's not because you're great that he loves you, but because he is great. He loves you despite your flaws, despite your failures, despite your impurities and sins. He loves you no matter how unlovable you are. And because he is so great, his love is steadfast, unchanging. So, with all those weighty truths in mind, let's go back to the main question. They're up there. What is wrong with us? What can make us right again? In verses 16 to 21, we get God's answer to that first part. What's the problem? The problem with all human beings is that our hearts and our actions stain us and they stain those around us. It's like all of us have yogurt hands. We're going around harming people, harming ourselves. There's a story about the author G.K. Chesterton uh, that the London Times, a newspaper, asked him, along with other notable authors, to write an article answering this question. What is wrong with the world? So G.K. Chesterton sent them a brief letter in reply, and here it was. Dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) Yes, human beings are made in God's image, but we're also full of brokenness and pride and jealousy and lust and greed. Our hearts are impure. They're stained. We need to be washed. We spread this mess every day in our lives, the lives of others. Even on our best days, we still mess up. So what can make this right again? This is where Ezekiel goes next, as God promises two solutions to this problem. Solution number one is a personal solution. Read with me in verses 22 to 32. This is a longer section here. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, 
declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart or from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." That was a lot to take in, right? But there is a structure to these verses that can break it down for us. So I've got up on the screen here the outer verses of this long paragraph, verses 22 to 23, 31 to 32. God promises that one day both Israel and the other nations will know the greatness of God's name. It's what we were just talking about. In the next layer in, verses 24 to 25, 28 to 30, God talks about returning the people to the land from which they were exiled and purifying them from their uncleannesses. And then, in this highly structured paragraph, there's something in the very center. Verses 26 to 27, we get the core solution. If the problem is that our hearts and our actions stain us and those around us, how is God going to fix us? Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is needed to fix the broken human condition is not a new set of ethical rules, not more willpower to follow God's laws. We don't need a reinvented system of morality. No, what is needed is a new heart and a new spirit within us. Jesus said, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So what we need is nothing less than complete inner transformation that then flows outward into a new way of living. So let's take those images one at a time, a new heart and a new spirit. First, the heart. The biblical authors use the word heart, the Hebrew is lev, uh, to mean not the center of our emotions, like I feel this in my heart, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up soon, we're going to see a lot of hearts around. Rather, the heart means the center of all human experiences. So in the Bible, you feel with your heart, yes, but you also think with your heart, and you make decisions with your heart, and you pursue desires with your heart. 
It's kind of like how we say that we want something with every fiber of our being. That's the idea here. So God is diagnosing a sickness at the core of every human being that leads us to turn away from God and pursue other things, things that harm us and others. Our need is for inner transformation. We need a heart transplant surgery that removes the stone, the stone-like stubbornness that is inside of us and replace it with soft, beating flesh. We also need a new spirit. In Hebrew, the word for spirit, it's the word ruach. It's the same word as breath or wind. So in the scriptures, every living creature, human beings, animals, we have an animating energy that gives us breath in our lungs and movement to our bodies. Uh, We have the word spirited, like he said that in a spirited way. That's the idea here. The human spirit is what moves you. you. If you go on a run, it's your spirit that is propelling your body. And again, God is diagnosing that we do things with our body that are evil and wrong, and so we need a new animating energy. We need a new ability to obey God's commands and to love others, just like he calls us to do. So here we have the first solution to our problem. What's wrong with us? It's that our hearts, our actions stain us and those around us. What do we need? We need a new heart and a new spirit. Theologians have a word for this. It's the word regeneration, renewal, restoration, rebirth. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration of this in Mere Christianity. He wrote, did you ever think when you were a child what fun it would be if your toys could come to life? He hadn't seen Toy Story yet. It hadn't come out. Well, suppose you really could have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real little man. It would involve turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like this. He is not interested in flesh. All he sees is that the tin is being spoilt. He thinks that you are killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. And the key line there is he thinks you are killing him. Rebirth feels like dying to your old self and receiving new life. What is required to fix our broken hearts and our spirits is not a clever strategy, it's not spiritual rehabilitation or a fresh resolve to live out our convictions. We need to die and we need to be reborn by God. We need divine power to change us at the very core of who we are. See, one of our deepest human desires is to be changed for the better. That's why so many of our stories in media and books have the hero's journey in which the main character goes on a quest and he comes out the other end quite a different person. It's why we buy self-help books. We follow lifestyle influencers. We watch endless self-improvement videos. We're longing to remake ourselves because we all have this instinct, and it's a good instinct, that we were made to be better than we actually are. It's a good longing. God made you in his image with dignity. But because human beings rebelled against God, tried to define their lives by themselves, where we go wrong is we try and remake ourselves through superficial means. Sometimes we define ourselves by our our little idols that we make. 
We make New Year's resolutions every year. How are those going for everybody? We download stunning 8K resolution meditation apps in the hope of being more mindful, and then we delete it later. But we need inside-out change. So let me ask you this morning, how's your heart? If you're not a Christian, you might feel that hopelessness that I described earlier. Like nothing is working, nothing is changing, you're exhausted of trying to remake yourself. And if that is you, then hear this good news. God can give you a new heart, a heart that is alive to God, alive to the world, a spirit that moves you to do the right things for the right reasons. Today, right now, you can be reborn. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when he was asked, well, how can I be born again? He said these famous words, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Continuing his analogy of the tin soldiers, C.S. Lewis said this, what you would have done about that tin soldier that doesn't want to be turned into a, a real person, I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man. The result of this was that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be. For the first time, we saw a real man, one tin soldier, real tin, just like the rest, had come fully and splendidly alive. So if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, okay, if I... Ask God to give me a new heart to rebirth me, to be born again. What will I look like on the other side? I want to make sure that I know what I'm buying into. If that's you, look at Jesus. God become human. And then believe this morning that Jesus, the great heart surgeon, can change your heart of stone into a living heart. You can be remade here and now. You don't have to keep on living the way that you have been. Things can change and God can do it. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For those of us who have already experienced this regeneration, who are Christians, what we need to do is return again and again to what is already true about us. Some of you this morning, even though you are Christians, even though you have a new heart and a new spirit, you feel dirty and unclean this morning. Something has happened to you, or maybe you've done something to someone else that's made you feel shame, humiliation, disgrace. Hear verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So if you are in Christ, you are clean and pure, washed white as snow. That is true about you. Some of you feel this morning like you can never change. Like you're just in the same old patterns of sin. They keep showing up. Like you're not growing spiritually at all. Like your life is kind of spinning the hamster wheel without meaning or purpose. If that's you, then hear verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation with new life, a new purpose. You have the Holy Spirit, God within you, to empower you and guide you. You're not a tin soldier anymore. You've been made alive. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our problem is that our hearts and our actions stain us and those around us. The first solution, the personal solution, is that God will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just gonna touch briefly on the rest of these verses on the second solution, but I think it is important that we read it. So let's look now at verses 36, or 33 to 36, the global solution. Read with me in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord." I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. In the previous verses, God focused on the internal change that needed to happen within human beings, but now he turns his attention to the rest of the world, which is also broken and in need of restoration. In the specific situation of Israel, their cities and land were literally destroyed when Babylon took them into exile, but the principles here apply to us as well. We live in a world of entropy, the gradual disordering of all things. Anyone who's a homeowner gets this instinctively. Roofs wear down, carpets get stained, pipes corrode, appliances break. On a larger scale, man-made things get old. They need constant refurbishing. Duluth potholes, am I right? Man, I feel like I should get an amen for that one. Yeah. You, just, you hit some of those potholes, and it's like your soul leaves your body for a minute. On a global scale, we see wars decimate villages and cities. We see melting glaciers, deforestation, other exploitive practices that cause harm to our natural environments, natural disasters, which have unthinkable casualties and so much cost to rebuild. In Romans 8, Paul looks at the world and he describes it as groaning for God to do something. And here in Ezekiel, God promises to remake the world like it was in the beginning. The Garden of Eden, as described in Genesis 1 and 2, a home of perfection and order and beauty. So here we have the global solution to our problems. We need a new creation. We need a new home. We need God to restore not only our hearts and spirits, but all things in every place. Sometimes you hear the idea that Christians are really just all about the soul. They're all about the spiritual things. They don't care about the physical things at all. For some Christians, that's the case, but that's not the case in the Bible. 
Our God doesn't just throw out his creation. He redeems it, matter included. And that is why Jesus came in the flesh, in a real body, to the real world, because salvation and redemption is not just spiritual, it's all-encompassing. And the final words of this passage are just a powerful stamp, a declaration of God's commitment on all that's said before. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Ezekiel 36, along with some other important prophetic passages like Jeremiah 31, Joel 2, which we're going to look at in a few weeks, they're all describing a new kind of relationship between God and his people. Biblical scholars commonly call this the new covenant. As we've seen throughout the thread series, a covenant is a formal relationship that involved oaths and promises. And in these texts, God is promising to replace the broken covenant with Israel with a new everlasting covenant that will fulfill all the promises of all the previous covenants. And Jesus saw himself as the inauguration of this new relationship. So we're experiencing some of these promises already. We have a new heart and a new spirit but we still got a little bit of stone in our heart, don't we? This new spirit doesn't always move us to act the way that we should. We have an already, but we have a not yet. One day, not yet here, when Jesus makes all things new, when we have n- no longer any sin that dwells inside of us, when our hearts are not divided and our spirits are fully in line with God's will, when our world does not break down but it flourishes, when all wrongs are made right, Now, I know that a lot of Ezekiel 36 is theological, it's big picture. Ezekiel was reading the story, and he was in the story. And interestingly, so are we. We're reading the story of human beings right here, but we're also characters in this story, this capital S story. So let me close by bringing it down to the very ground level, common sense level. Do you really believe that God will do what he's promised here? Can you take him at his word? Can you trust that he has accurately defined the problem of all human beings and that he has given you the solutions? If you do struggle to believe, then look to Jesus, the perfect human being with a perfect heart and a perfect spirit who died so that you could live. Rebirth, restoration, resurrection are only possible from him, the one who has defeated sin and death. If you doubt that God will do what he has said he will do in these verses, hear again his last words. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Let me pray for you. Father God, we hear your commitment, we hear your words, and yet we struggle to believe it. We struggle to take you at your word. We struggle to live out the identity that you've given us. For those of us who have put our trust in you, who believe in Jesus for eternal life, help us to remember what we already know. For those here who don't know you, I pray that they would come to feel their need for a new heart and a new spirit, which you can give right here and right now. Thank you for Ezekiel. I pray that you would walk with us wherever we go. Carry these words in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.